So you want to get your MBA and you've got a few questions. Well, we've got answers. Welcome to the MBA podcast, the spot for honest and actionable advice about business school. For more information, check out our site at thembapodcast.com. Now, here's your host, David O'Brien. Good morning, everyone, or afternoon, evening, whatever time it may be for you. I should probably just say good day, but I, I feel like that's too old-timey, and I saw this movie with, uh, if you haven't seen it, it's Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell. It's a holiday movie, and in it, they uh, apparently good day back in the day used to be some sort of insult, and some guy like, you know, modern day times gently says like, good day to Will Ferrell. He's like, what'd you say? And goes after him. Anyway, so I can't really say good day without feeling a bit weird about it. So how about hello, dear listener? Okay. Uh, Should I take the GMAT or the GRE? This is by a large margin, the most frequently asked question. And the answer is this, whichever one you can get a better score on, but how do you know which one you'll do better at? Take the official practice test. Really simple, right? Uh, The GMAT is at mba.com and the GRE is at ets.org. That's echotangosierra.org. So GMAT is mba.com, easy to remember, and the GRE is at ets.org. Now, what if your score is similar on both? Take whichever one has a better math or quantitative score. And as far as comparing scores, you can Google a GMAT to GRE conversion, but look at a few sources and take the average as, as far as I know, there, there's no standard conversion. Max score is an 800 on the GMAT and a 340 on the GRE. So that can be a starting point. And I've always kind of compared when I was reading applications, something like a 700 GMAT to a 326 GRE. So that's a 700 GMAT is roughly equivalent to a 326 GRE. That's the total score. For, for reference, almost all of the top schools advertise a class average of 730 on the GMAT, which is a 330 on the GRE. And that one's easy. A 730 is roughly equivalent to a 330. Um, and actually, let me correct that. Most third-party websites like Poets and Quants advertise a 730 GMAT. If you Google Class Profile Chicago Booth, which I'd encourage you to do, or Class Profile Harvard Business School, or it's just called HBS, you'll get the most up-to-date info, which in the test section shows a 720 average. This is Booth, a 720 average and a 730 median, but right next to that and of equal importance is the GRE with a 325 average. You add the quant in the verbal section of the GRE to get the total. This little bit of clarification will be really important soon. So look up some version of class profile, class statistic, uh, what have you, relative to the school you're looking into, and there you have it. You know what scores to aim for. That's it. Take a practice test of the GMAT and GRE, study for and take whichever you're naturally better at. Easy, right? Uh, No, of course not. David, I, I read everywhere online that the GMAT is weighed more heavily than the GRE, and most people I know took the GMAT. I, I hear you. From the horse's mouth, I can tell you that without doubt, schools do not give a crap which test you take. So my first day in admissions included a meeting in which I was totally lost. Admissions is basically acronym soup and very jargon heavy. But one thing I did pick up on, especially after seeing my wife crush her ability to feel joy uh, studying for them, was the conversation around the GRE and the GMAT. And the conversation went something like, oh, man, I hate these tests. I can't wait till we don't have to use them. Again, that's that's coming from directors, not not an applicant. 
And that was about as deeply as we ever discussed tests. So don't like standardized tests. The next time we discussed the GMAT was almost a year later when, again, we mentioned the same sentiment. Those are really the deepest it ever got. You know, schools know and test makers know that there isn't a strong statistical correlation between a good GMAT and a good business leader. There just isn't, no matter what. Anything saying otherwise is literally a categorical lie, especially when it comes from the test maker's website. You are not a standardized test, and one of the least effective ways to test intelligence is with a standardized test. The GMAT and the GRE are nonsensical, archaic, money-making, gatekeeping tools that have heavily contributed to the straight white male-dominated MBA scene. And I'm saying that as a straight white male in the MBA scene. I was going to keep this podcast clean, but I'd prefer to be honest. Standardized tests are bullshit. They insult you as an individual and they devalue humanity as a whole. I'm not being hyperbolic. However, as the Air Force is so fond of saying, sometimes you just have to shut up and color. And that's what you have to do with the GMAT and the GRE. Let me give you a little more perspective since my opinions can easily be categorized as biased and hyperbolic. You'll see on most aggregating third-party websites, of which Poets and Quants is one, that the GMAT is front and center with the GRE buried in the background somewhere. Uh, Draw your own conclusions as to why that is, but go to Chicago's class profile, the actual Chicago class profile that Chicago Booth publishes, and you'll see that the GMAT and GRE are right next to each other. Guess what? It's the same for Harvard's class profile, and neither Harvard nor Booth state a preference for either test. This is verbatim from Harvard, their website. There is no minimum GMAT or GRE to apply, and we do not have a preference towards one test or the other. But David, I I really feel that the GMAT is preferred. Again, I hear you, but you're falling victim to marketing and and the whole uh, correlation causation issue. Ask yourself this, why would Harvard lie? Why would Booth lie? Why would they tell you? Why would Harvard tell you that they have no preference? And don't make the mistake of thinking their directors have some sort of subconscious bias towards the GMAT. They're freaking Harvard admissions directors, which means they're some of the best directors anywhere in the world. They say what they mean, they mean what they say. I, I promise you. But why would a third party website lie? Well, I have some ideas. And remember, it's a lie of, of I'm, I'm being, you know, You could call it whatever you want to call it. It's a non-truth or something. You know, they're just not telling you the full truth, which we're going to call a lie. Uh, Either way, my my ideas are somewhat unsubstantiated, and I don't want to be sound like a conspiracy theorist or anything. Um, But finally, why would a test prep site like MBA.com lie and say the GMAT gives a competitive advantage? That one's really easy to answer. Money. All right, stick with me here. My wife and I bought the domain, the mbapodcast.com, and want to get the other iteration soon, the .org, .fm, and so on. But domains are expensive. And can you imagine how expensive the domain name of mba.com was? Not only is it unbelievably recognizable, it's one of the most important degrees out there. And people with MBAs are, without fail, the top earners in the world, aside from the, you know, strange one-offs that dropped out of like Harvard business school or something, you know, MBA.com had to cost so much money and man, it looks super nice and official, the MBA.com website, but what is it? It's a test prep site. It's not affiliated with any school and has zero tools for actually giving you an MBA, 
but it does have a nifty like subversive pop-up when I went to it this morning, which says why choosing a relevant test can help with your business school application. There's a subtle like mean girls type of dig there. The word relevant, meaning the GMAT is relevant. The GRE isn't, but Harvard and Booth, the places that actually give you the MBA say that they don't care. Imagine if the website va.gov was a quasi legit looking service that eventually led you to some sort of VA consultant who charged a fee to help you navigate the veterans affairs system. And then you had to get a different website or go to a different website like ebenefits.gov to get into the actual veterans affairs office. We'd call bullshit on that. This is exactly what mba.com is. On a quick side note, if you know any veterans, especially older veterans, make sure they know that VA.com is a fake website. Its first link is to VA Benefits, but it's spelled Benafits, B-E-N-A-F-I-T-S. Super annoying. Uh, Really, really annoys me that they would try and take advantage of veterans, but let's not get off topic here. Just if you know anybody, it's VA.gov, not VA.com. Back on track. The GRE and the GMAT exist for a singular purpose, to take your money. That's it. If you're thinking I'm being harsh, I am. And while I don't mean to self-aggrandize here and assume this podcast will ever get big enough to get sponsored, I, I think you can tell I'll never be sponsored by a testing site, which I'm more than okay with. And if, if you ever hear a totally non-relevant ad on my podcast, just know it's because I've pretty much blacklisted myself with the um, unethical testing sites, which again, we're all okay with. Let me dispel one more uh, causation and correlation myth. More people get into business school with the GMAT than the GRE. That is 100% true. The GMAT has a singular purpose, business school. The GRE covers almost everything else except MDs, DOs, and uh, JDs. Last time we got the numbers, about 35,000 people use the GRE when applying to business school. Uh, Something like 350,000 or something took the GRE, though. That was for other purposes. But 35,000 people use the GRE to get into an MBA school. 150,000 people took the GMAT. And remember, the GMAT is just for business school. Think about that. Let's say the GMAT has a 25% success rate resulting in acceptance offers to a business school. That's 37,500 admissions using the GMAT. That's still more than if the GRE had a 100% success rate. With those numbers, you could still say that more people get into business school with a GMAT, even if it had a 25% success rate, than the GRE. Is this because schools value the GMAT more, even though all of them say they do not, Or is it simply because so many more people take the GMAT because of marketing, word of mouth, myths, and the fact that maybe at some point it was actually custom made and more appropriate for MBA applications? So to clarify again, if the GMAT had a 25% success rate, they would still have 37,500 admissions. And that's more than if the GRE had a 100% success rate. Hopefully I've made my point. If you still feel like the GMAT is a better choice, I'd really encourage you just to believe in yourself and take the GMAT. You've got to take one to the other, so go for it. Let's touch on a few more follow-up questions. If a school does not require a GMAT or a GRE, I'd still probably tell you to take a practice test. And if you score well on one of them, go ahead and study for it and take it. I'd imagine that a strong test score would only help your application to a school that doesn't require them. But I'll try and do some more digging on this as that's truly just a a personal anecdote. I don't know that for certain. 
The other common follow-up questions are, is my score good enough for X school? And how long should I study? And uh, finally, should I pay for test prep? I'll, I'll answer them in order. The question of, is my score good enough, is actually often asked as, what's the lowest score X school accepts? This number is rarely, if ever, published for outside consumption. The range is wider than you think, though. If your dream school is Harvard and you score a 660 GMAT or a 322 GRE, I'd still encourage you to apply. Is that crazy advice? Yes, but if you don't apply, I can guarantee you will not get in. As we discussed earlier, you'll have a ton of work to do to make up for that bumpy downhill bit on your guided tour of Application Mountain, but it's not impossible. Of course, the closer your score is to the school's published median, the, the better. And being even a few points above the median or the mean is better still. As a general rule, the range of acceptance, let's say uh, the 730 schools, which are the top schools, have a range of something like maybe 700 to 760, with the outliers being in the mid 600s and, of course, high 700s. That range is narrowest as you get into the top tier schools and opens up as you move down the list. Another way to look at this, uh, let's say X school is building a class of 1,000 MBA students. If their average needs to remain right around 730, they have a lot of room, especially if they can get six or 700 people with 730s through the door. Lots of them will have insane scores like 780. This gives them the ability to absorb 660s and not skew their numbers. However, they need to be very selective with who they absorb. So you need to give them an extremely good reason to use one of those spots on you. Let's diverge a little. I, I didn't know when to fit this in, but I feel as if it's most relevant now, though it kind of breaks this question and answer flow. But either way, stick with me. Here's a quick personal story and a bit of a, you can apply with a 660, but my, my, my wife studied insanely hard for the GMAT and we paid for a very expensive and well-marketed test prep program. She took a practice GMAT and didn't do well. She studied six hours a day during her work days and literally 10 hours a day on her days off. Those are six hours of studying after, before and after an eight hour work day. Uh, I'm not being hyperbolic. She stopped to sleep and walk our dog when I wasn't around. She basically survived on lifesavers and tried to eat the food that I cooked, but was too stressed and nervous to eat much of anything. I'm, I'm sure you can relate. A few months later, and a lot of money spent on test prep, she took the GMAT again. This was still COVID times, so she took the test at home with someone on a webcam watching her. And by the way, I think every school still accepts the at-home GMAT and GRE. And from the admission side, there's no bias towards the home test or a testing center. Take whichever one is more convenient. So anyway, my wife goes upstairs to take the test and I keep our dogs and cats occupied and quiet. I know the test only allows three hours. So I set a timer on vibrate on my phone so it doesn't bother. And, you know, three hours later, my phone starts vibrating and nothing. Another hour passes, then another. Okay, something's wrong. I walk upstairs, I crack the door, and I see my wife sprawled on the floor sobbing. After all that work, after all that money and missed dinners, and we skipped a couple birthday parties and meals and everything, her score was worse. There was absolutely no way we were getting into an MBA school. Of course, I, I got down painfully and slowly, since I'm kind of rough on my body, onto the floor, and I just held her. And we laid there for a while. My arm started to go numb under her head. And this is a great snapshot of who my wife is. 
uh, a deep breath and a, okay, let's get to it. And my wife is up and back on the computer looking at the GRE. The next GRE test is the next day. She takes the GRE. She does better on it. Not great, but better. A few months later, we have an acceptance letter from Booth, the number one business school in the world, and a scholarship offer. Sweetheart, if you're listening, I'm still so damn proud of you, and I always will be. Now, here's the part of the reason I'm telling you this story. After my wife submitted her applications to Harvard, Booth, Kellogg, Ross, Combs, and DU, we waited. But not for long. Within a few weeks, Harvard said, no thanks. That was crushing. Her brother-in-law is a HBS MBA, so he was really pulling for us to get in there. Then a few months went by until we got any other letter, rejection or otherwise. Then a turn of fortune and an offer from Ross. Super exciting, and that, that school is amazingly fun to visit. Then we got waitlisted on Kellogg, and then McCombs and DU. Uh, I think they both offered. I can't remember which one came first. But anyway, as we were planning our trip to visit Ross up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, a really fun little town, we get a little email saying there's been an update to your application status from an admissions at chicagobooth.edu. My wife braces herself a little bit because Kellogg waitlisted us and Harvard denied us. Booth surely won't be anything exciting. She she clicks on her application portal. It takes forever to load, of course. And wait, what, what the hell? A, a YouTube video and a, a catchy little jingle. And what shows up? A couple of establishing shots inside Booth, then it cuts to black and a big flashing congrats, followed a few seconds later by you're a Boothie. And well, you can imagine our reaction because you'll be reacting the same way very soon. We still have our Ross trip to plan though. And eventually after a celebratory dinner, we get back to it. After the initial buzz wears off, we start to discuss Booth. Chicago is not our preferred location, though I will tell you we've kind of fallen in love with the city. And Booth is way more expensive than any other option. Chicago is an expensive city too, so there's it, it's doubly expensive to go to Booth. Um, so on and so forth. There's a lot of doubt creeping in. A week or so later, we fly to Michigan and tour Ross. In the hotel that night, we get an email from, uh, I can't remember which one, but one of the MBA ranking sites like Newsweek, and it says new rankings are in, and there's a change at the top. You'll see that all the time. We open it, and Booth moves from second to first. Booth is the top school. Where's Harvard? Fifth. Don't, don't worry, they're, they're still Harvard. It's, it's Harvard. They're fine. Um, Ross, congrats to them, has broken into the top 10 for the first time. This is all amazing news, but all of a sudden, the number one school, number freaking one, has offered us a spot at their school. They've also offered a scholarship. Not much, but anything helps. And as an aside, we did successfully negotiate for more money, and I'll help you with that in another episode. We decided to change our flights home from Michigan to actually leave from Chicago O'Hare a few days later. We rented a car, and we drove down to Chicago. I'll tell you more about our journey from there a little later, but as you know, we ended up at Booth. So thank you for listening to that story and indulging me. As you know, after all of this, I eventually came to work in an MBA office. Here's the presently relevant takeaway. After seeing the admissions process from my wife's side and the admissions side, there was something suspiciously fast about Harvard's rejection letter. If you want me to go into more detail in another episode, I'd be happy to, but to put it simply, Harvard gets a significantly larger amount of applications than any of the other top tier schools. Stanford, I think, would be a close second, but it doesn't have a proportionally larger admissions team. Again, my experience of MBA admissions, the ones I know at Booth through my wife and the ones I worked with, all seem to be very genuine and great people. 
but they are people with a limited lifespan. I'd imagine that as a matter of practicality, an admissions department at Harvard, especially post-pandemic, might have to use some unfortunate but necessary hard filters to limit the amount of applications needing to be read. I doubt it's a single filter, like if your test score isn't this, you're denied, but I'd still bet a filter exists and my wife was caught on the wrong side of that filter. So if you have a 660 and apply to Harvard, you may get a suspiciously fast rejection letter. My best guess is that if they had their way, they wouldn't send that letter, but they simply cannot read every single application. Now, this this hypothetical filter does not exist at the school I work at and all, or I worked at, sorry. And all the directors at Booth told my wife and our friends, the other Boothies, that they do not filter in that way. And you can ask the schools too when you're uh, um, visiting there or applying. They all said that they genuinely read every single application. So that's confirmation that most of the top, top, top schools actually read your entire application with a 560 or a 660 or a 760. So with some caveats, a low test score shouldn't preclude you from applying to the top schools. Trying to remember that a rejection from them is very likely due to a matter of pragmatics, not a judgment on your ability to complete an MBA. Circling back to the follow-up questions of how long should I study and should I pay for test prep? So how long should you study? Not long. I, I really don't think you need six months to study for a single test. Um, unless it's like, I don't know, you're a lawyer and it's the LSAT, LSAT. And then I don't even know then how effective it is. I just know that tons of them do that. Uh, there's definitely diminishing returns on study time. And especially knowing that all of us young adults seem to be um, professional procrastinators, I'd encourage you to put yourself under some pressure and set a tight deadline that makes you a bit uncomfy. For my wife, that was a little over a month. It, it may be different for you and it may be different due to deadlines. Just be sure to push yourself. Do not fall into the trap of spending 80% of your time on one piece of the application. It's the biggest mistake people make by far, especially when they have a high score. They think that like a 780 will carry them. Trust me, it does not. If you have a high test score and you make it to the interview or video call or some sort of second phase, but keep getting denied, it's because you're relying on your test score and the rest of your application is weak. The test score matters less and less the further along you get in the process. And finally, should you pay for test prep? Well, as you heard with my wife, it literally had a negative net impact on her. And let's put it this way. My wife already had a graduate degree before attending Booth and holds multiple patents with Boeing. She also did extremely well at Booth. It was challenging, but she worked hard and got great grades. More importantly, though, she became someone at Booth that other Boothies went to when they were struggling because not only could she get herself through a top MBA school, she brought others along with her. All of that to say that my wife is not what one might call unintelligent. So what does that say about the very expensive, literally thousands of dollars, test prep? It says to be wary, very, very, very wary. I refuse to endorse a test prep program on a podcast that will hopefully exist for years and years, but I will try and keep a list of okay test prep places for various budgets. And if you'd like that list, you can shoot me an email through our website, uh, thembapodcast.com. If you get a bit of a copy and paste response, please forgive me. But remember, I'm not giving some blessing or blanket endorsement to these companies. You still need to be very critical and lead towards not using them. Just like the GMAT and the GRE, these companies exist solely to make money.
And real quick, since I'm talking to business professionals, I have zero issue with making money. I simply expect companies to actually offer value for the money they charge. And I feel the entire testing and test prep industry is archaic, problematic, and has a totally weak value proposition while remaining frustratingly perennial. Like I'd be cooler with a GMAT website if it said, hey, we know we suck, but this is how the MBA world works currently. And an MBA is certainly worth it. So by association, we're worth it. Good luck. Give us your money. That'll be it for this episode. As always, uh, thank you for hanging out with me. I hope you're enjoying your week, your weekend, and you're finding something fun to do with your free time. And speaking of free time, uh, my wife and I have lately started playing tennis. If you haven't played, it really draws from all of our previous athletic experience, but it's super fun. Definitely get a good coach so you don't develop bad habits early. If you're in the Chicago area, uh, message me. And I can give you a, uh, I can let you know who we're using as a coach because she's wonderful. Anyway, thank you as always and have a wonderful day. We'll talk soon.